The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10, at verse 25. Continuing in the series on the Gospel of Luke, coming to the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke, chapter 10, at verse 25. Hear the Word of God. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from, Je- from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known and best-loved portions of Scripture. Even those who don't want anything to do with most of what the Bible says, they like this parable. While he was president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson decided he would produce for his own use at least, an edited version of the Bible to suit his own liking as to what he thought should be in there. And he called it the philosophy of Jesus Christ. Gone were all the miracles. The resurrection of Jesus was edited out. The Gospels ended with his death. All the statements of Jesus being God were cut out. But the parable of the Good Samaritan was retained along with other things. That may not surprise you. That kind of reaction really shouldn't surprise us. The world may mock our Christian teaching, teaching about God and His holiness and that He is sovereign, teaching about our sin and the fact of original sin, that we are all born sinful, the fact that you must be born again 
The idea that you have to come to Jesus Christ to be saved through faith in him. These are all teachings that the world scorns. But the world has always been impressed with the ethics of Christianity. Not that they necessarily follow them, but they're impressed by them and attracted by them. They admire what Jesus says in this way. And no section we might say more than the Good Samaritan. It is very familiar. And so there is for us a real danger that it's so familiar that we think we already know what it says, and so we just kind of ignore it. And so we have to really seek to let it sink into our hearts and make application to our lives. We must be careful not to miss what it says, and we ought to let it convict us of where we need to change and encourage us to follow Jesus Christ and to trust in Him and to bring our lives into greater conformity to His Word. We notice first from this parable this morning that this parable exposes our need for Jesus Christ. Jesus, in speaking this parable, is cutting to the heart of what we might call works righteousness, the idea that by our own morality, by our own behavior, we can attain to heaven, we can please God and be accepted by Him. This parable smashes that doctrine. The context here is in verse 25 that we see that there's this occasion that an expert in the law, someone who was very schooled in the law of God, the Word of God, we find that he stood up to test Jesus. So his question might have been fine, but we're, we see here that his motive is wrong. He comes to test him. He comes, in a sense, to trick him, to catch him, and to, to somehow prove him wrong. So there was a good question, but a wrong motive. And it's very likely that this expert in the law probably already knew what answer Jesus would give. Jesus was a great teacher. Great teachers repeat themselves. Certainly, Jesus repeated this often when he asked about, essentially, what is the summary of the moral law of God? Love your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is very familiar to all the Jews of that day. The first part of that, the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy 6. That word comes from, hear, O Israel, in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord your God is one. And love the Lord your God. A good Jew would have been very familiar with that. And then plus, he appends to it the second greatest commandment from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of answering him, Jesus turns the tables on him and says, well, what do you think? How do you read it? In other words, how do you interpret the law? And so the teacher gave the answer that he knew Jesus was going to give anyway. And he gives it, and Jesus simply says, well, go this, go and do it. That's right. I'm sure it was a little bit embarrassing to ask a question, then answer it yourself and have Jesus say, right, go and do it. But of course, to hear that, do this and you will live, who of us can hear that and say, yes, that's the basis on which I want to be accepted by God. No matter how moral you may be, no matter how religious you may be, do you really think that you are living up to the standards of God? And I'm certain this expert in the law was to some degree dealing with that because we're told in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asks, well, the question we all know from this parable, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds. 
this expert in the law wanted to be able to say to himself and to sense say to God, I have fully kept the law. He wanted to justify himself. And the only way to be justified in light of the deep, searching nature of the law of God, which James tells us commands perfection, if you offend in one aspect, you've broken the whole law. In order to keep that, you've got to have some legalistic boundaries around the law to make it doable, to somehow limit or to restrict the law of God. And in this expert's mind, the way to do that is to limit who my neighbor is. Really, most Jews of that day would have seen these commands from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 as applying to how they treat their fellow Jews. Leviticus 19 goes on to apply it to resident foreigners, aliens within their midst. It would apply to them as well. But beyond that, to foreigners outside of their bounds, and probably especially they would think to despised Samaritans, this would never apply. Well, really, this is the nature of all legalism, which sets itself up as a way to think that you are acceptable before God, but really is an utter failure to keep the law of God. Stop and think about this. When you hear this parable spoken, probably that you've known for years, do you have an honest sense of your need for Jesus Christ alone, of His righteousness on your behalf, His life for you, a life of perfect obedience, keeping the whole law of God in His earthly life, a life sacrificed on the cross for your sins, for my sins, and raised from the dead, do you have a sense of your need for Christ? Or are you in some way, like this expert, coming to God in your mind, seeking to justify yourself? Asking honest questions of God, that's not wrong. There's a place to ask questions of God and to say, what what does the Bible say? How do you speak to this? But it is wrong to ask questions of God with that kind of arrogance and pride of setting yourself up as judge, that you are the judge somehow of God Himself. And there's an awful lot of that in our Western society, setting ourselves up as the judge, and we put God on trial. That's wrong. The commands of God are very deep. They're very very searching. The summary that Jesus gives it the Ten Commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't we all hear that and know that we're indicted? We have failed. First John chapter 4, the Apostle John puts it this way. It says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John is essentially saying there, the way you can tell whether you really truly love God is the fruit in your life of love for others. If you don't love people whom you've seen, how can you be saying you love God? And we all fall short of that. We know we don't love God as we should, and it comes out in our lives. And that's why this parable drives us to Jesus Christ. The gospel says none of us keeps the law of God. We fall far short of the glory of God. And Christ 
has come and has had mercy on us in the good news of the gospel. And through faith in him, we are given a new heart. He gives us new life. He cleanses our sins. And then he begins to build in us a new and growing love for God and love for those around us. Not perfectly, of course, not in this life, but there is something that God is doing, and it's of the Lord. Many of you probably got ready for Hurricane Irene this week. You know, I was in the middle of the week starting to do the mental checklist. Okay, we've got flashlights. We'll make sure we charge the cell phones the night before, and I went around checking the downspouts, and I had a really good idea. I used the croquet wickets to push down on those black extensions from the downspouts and hold those down. I was really proud of myself. I'm going to have to get some permanent ways. But I felt pretty good. And then about Friday night, Patty and I were out, and I thought, you know, I'm going to stop by Home Depot. And I think of this every emergency and think a generator would be a good idea. Sure, the sump pumps, if we lose power, the sump pump's going to overflow, the basement's going to flood. But, I, you know, I just never wanted to spend the money. So there I am in Home Depot Friday night, walking around the store thinking, where do they keep these? Of course, little did I know, I hadn't been really watching the news that the whole East Coast is sold out of generators. <laughs> and the clerk was very nice. Sorry, sir, we don't have any of those. Okay. So I was pretty well prepared. Maybe some of you were better prepared. And the storm didn't turn out too badly. What if it would have been a Category 3 storm and Lancaster would have been dead in its sight? What if it would have been a Category 5 storm? What if it would have been a tornado? My brother-in-law moved to Huntsville last year, and he and his family were right in the middle of this spring's tornado attack. And just tornadoes everywhere, desolation everywhere. Their house was spared. But as a result, he ended up deciding to invest in one of those $20,000 stainless steel tornado shelters in the basement. So I guess you could be prepared for that. What if it was a tornado Category 5? What if it's an earthquake? You know, 5.8, okay, rattles a little bit. It's kind of exciting. What about 6.8? What about 7.8? What about 8.8? What about 9.8? You know, there's a point. My point is here is that there's a point in which no matter how well prepared, all preparation would fall short. If the ground opens up in an earthquake of that magnitude, nothing would help us. And I use that as an illustration of keeping the law You may think you're pretty well prepared, and maybe you're prepared for a hurricane category one. Maybe you think you're keeping the law pretty well. The storm or the earthquake of the judgment of God on sin is beyond anything that we can imagine. And the Bible declares that it ultimately is coming. It's coming on all who are not hidden in Christ. So this parable, first of all, drives us to Jesus Christ as the only refuge. But secondly, this parable calls us to God's standard of loving our neighbor. It calls us to God's standard. Let's look at this parable a little bit more closely. We find in verse 30 that it begins with the idea of a man. It's it's a parable. It didn't really occur But Jesus tells this story, and he says, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's a 17-mile trip. You're going from higher elevation to lower elevation. I've never been there, but I've read the description of it, and apparently at the end of that road, the land gets pretty desolate and pretty rough, 
pretty barren, good places for robbers to hide and for a traveler to be waylaid. It kind of reminds me of those old westerns you watch, and the good guys are going along, and you see them coming to the pass, and you think, watch out, the bad guys are there. They always seem to just get caught off guard. That's the idea here. The man is going down, the robbers waylay him, and he's left for dead. And so first, there's the priest that goes by. And the priest is kind of at the hierarchy of the religious scale. He's the one who would offer sacrifices to God, very revered, looked up to. And he passes by on the other side. A great failure of integrity as a priest. A good priest would have said the Shema in the morning and the evening every day. Love the Lord your God, but there's no fruit of it in his life. There's no compassion. And then a Levite, who's not quite as high on the religious scale, but is likewise of the, of the clan that is to do service to the temple and so forth, he passes by. He sees the man, passes by. Probably they didn't want to be unclean ceremonially. If you t- touch someone who was dead, then you'd be ceremonially unclean for a while. And then the third character of the story comes along, and probably the Jews hearing this for the first time would have expected a layman. You know, the pastor failed, the deacon failed, and then a normal member comes along. That's probably what many of them would have expected here, just a normal Jew. But Jesus has the twist here. It's so familiar to us, we don't realize how astounding this would have been. The hero of the story is a despised Samaritan. You know, the Jews did not lose any love on the Samaritans. The Samaritans originated with the northern ten tribes and their false worship. And then when they were taken into a captivity by Assyria, Assyria shipped in other foreign groups. And there was intermingling in terms of marriage with foreigners and a Assyrians, and and it came to be this race of Samaritans whom the pure Jews would have despised, not only their worship. And in fact, in chapter 9, we saw that there was a point at which the disciples were ready to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan town. In fact, if Jesus would have told the story the other way, if the Samaritan would have been beaten on the roadside, a Jew would have come along, and probably the audience would have thought, well, good, leave him for dead. That's probably the best solution to that. No, but Jesus turns it around, and the hero is a Samaritan, and there's this beauty, there's this attractiveness to the fact that the despised Samaritan does this, and he puts himself out. He spends money. He spends time. He cares for the man with his own hands. He bandages his wounds. It must have been a messy thing. Puts him on his own donkey, takes care of him, tells the innkeeper that if he spends more, he'll come back and pay him that. He's loving not only in word and in thought, he's loving in deed. A number of years ago, there was a CBS anchorman and reporter, Hugh Rudd, maybe some of you remember this, who was mugged outside of his New York City apartment complex. He was right outside the entrance, and he was beaten so badly that he was lying on the ground. His eyes were open, and he, was, he could see, and he was conscious of what was going on around him, but he couldn't speak other than kind of moaning and groaning and mumbling. And from 2.30 in the morning late night to dawn, 
Various people came by, people coming back from the theater, people doing this. Apparently the milkman came by and nobody bothered to help him. They just went by on the other side of the road. So this behavior really still happens and it shouldn't surprise us. And the clear application of this parable is that we are called to love our neighbor. And who is that? It's anyone. It's anyone whom the Lord puts in your pathway. And Jesus, in fact, calls us even to love our enemies. Deeply searching and pushing us out of our comfort zone. We know that we have a a special responsibility to our family. Parents care for their children. Children care for elderly parents. Husbands and wives, a special love. We know that Scripture speaks about a special responsibility in the body of Christ to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we would almost like to just end it there and put the boundary there and say, that feels pretty good. I think I can do that, or at least I'll try to do that. But the Bible goes on and says, no, to exhibit the love of Christ, it's got to go beyond that. In fact, not long before this, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus has said it this way, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So Jesus is saying, this is the way the world acts. They love their own. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. I kind of imagine even the mafia does that. Even the mafia takes care of its own self. You know. Jesus is really cutting to our hearts and saying, followers of me, those who trust in me, those who are being transformed by my power and my love will begin to act more and more like me and will be neighbors to people different from themselves. They will help the poor This will not be a legalism. It will not be a simple formula. I wish I could give that to you because then we could all hide behind that and be safe. Here's the formula, and if you do this, you're good. No, the Bible pushes us beyond our comfort zones, and a heart transformed by Jesus Christ will begin to love others in new and different ways. And as a church, we're being called to this. It's not going to look the same in all of our lives. It doesn't have to look the same. Maybe It involves a missions trip. Maybe that's one opportunity for you. Maybe, like Troy preached a few weeks ago, maybe you're being called to adopt a child. Or maybe it's just practical help for a single mom that you know. Maybe it's loving someone who has been placed in your pathway at your school, kids. Maybe it's that that student who's in your classroom that nobody else befriends. Maybe that's the neighbor Jesus is calling you to befriend and to love in some way. Maybe it's ministry to children. Maybe it's a city ministry that many of our folks are involved with. Maybe it's sponsoring a child through an organization like Compassion International. We could go on and on. Maybe it's someone who God has put in your life who is difficult to love. At General Assembly this June, Tim Keller preached a sermon on the entire chapter of Luke 10. The first point was 72 being sent out. The second point was the Good Samaritan. And the third point was Martha and Mary. So quite a a lot to preach on. And when Dr. Rogers told Troy and me that he would be happy if we continued the Luke series, Troy and I both immediately had the same idea. Oh, we need to listen to the Keller sermon. I have it, so I haven't given it to Troy yet. But he's going to preach on Martha and Mary. I'm, I'm tempted when I hear a good sermon like that to just preach the same thing. That's not what I've done at all. But I will mention this. Keller 
preaching on the Good Samaritan, and it's re- it was really, General Assembly was on the theme of reaching the world for Christ. And Keller was saying, to really reach others for Christ, two things have to come together here. And he was making the point, the message of truth. He was talking about the 72 being sent out. We have to be valiant for truth. But that has to be wedded to an attractive life. A life that the world says, wow, there's something different about that. In fact, Keller is saying our message is actually repulsive to the world. This whole message about Christ being the only way and his dying for sin, that message is foolishness to the world. It's repulsive, but linked to that repulsive message is an attractive, winsome, loving life. And you need both aspects of that. He says, if Christians have attractive lives that are loving lives but hide the message, people won't come to know Christ. But likewise, you could be very valiant for truth and be holding to the truth. But if your life doesn't look any different from the world, if people don't see something of this good Samaritan in you, something of this integrity, something of this sympathy and compassion, then your message is going to fall on deaf ears. We need to be both bold messengers and loving neighbors. And that's a high calling, isn't it? But we can't water it down. We have to continue to be coming to the Lord and saying, Oh, Lord, work in my life what you would have. Convict me of my sin. Enable me to more and more live like this. And that brings me to my final point, briefly. The gospel guards us from two errors in responding to this parable of the Good Samaritan. There's two ways that we could easily respond to this as we think about its implications for our lives. One is a legalistic way, and the other is with license. Legalism, though, takes this parable and wants to do to it what the expert in the law did, wants to come to it with a self-righteous perspective and think to ourselves, okay, I'm doing that. The expert wanted to justify himself, and we can do that as well. We can hear a sermon like this and say, I think I'm doing that pretty well. But the only way we can be self-righteous in response to this is having barriers to stop us from seeing the full implication of this. Of course, legalism also can crush us, and maybe your response is more this way. Maybe your response, you hear this and you think, I am overwhelmed by this. Maybe you even become frantic trying to live it. And the answer to that is don't get caught up in legalism. Keep your heart and your mind fixed on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's our helper. He is the one who is at work in our lives. Yes, we're going to see ways that we fall short. Keep drinking deeply at the fountain of Jesus Christ. Sing that hymn number 646 over again. We just sang it. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. It's all about him, about drinking of Jesus Christ. And so legalism is not the answer to this. Don't put up those boundaries and see yourself as self-righteous or as overwhelmed. And the other extreme is license. License is what we might call easy believism. The idea that once you're saved, you can just sit back and do nothing. Now, we know that we're not saved by our doing. 
We know we're not saved by our works. But the gospel comes and it says, Jesus died. He rose again. Trust in him. Give him your life. And then he gives you a new heart. And you cannot help but to begin living like Jesus Christ. License really is what we would call practical antinomianism against law, as living as if there is not any law. So you think that somehow you can come to Christ and be saved and just go on living for sinful self. The Bible destroys that view. If you're trying to live that way, it's false. If you have come to Christ, there will be some change in your life. Yes, you'll still struggle with remaining sin, but Jesus turns our lives upside down. The gospel guards us from responding to this parable in either of those ways, and instead, it calls us to boldly move ahead in loving neighbors. Romans 14 has an interesting statement of this. It talks about love in terms of debt. It says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Loving is a fulfillment of the law. And Paul speaks of it in terms of debt. You know, it's interesting because none of us like debt. The national debt, we don't like that. Maybe you've paid off your car loan. Maybe you're soon going to pay off your mortgage on your house. It's theoretical that even the United States government might pay off its national debt sometime. Wouldn't that be great to see that sign that's at $14 trillion when it would go to zero? You know, well, uh, don't hold your breath on that one. But that's more likely than Christians ever paying off their debt of love. The Bible says we always have the debt of love. In fact, if anything, my interpretation of this is as you age and as you grow, as you know more individuals and as you think about the connections of others, if anything, your debt of love is growing. And this isn't to burden us. We are called to let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. That's a good debt. God calls us to fulfill that debt, so to speak, by turning toward others. We have received grace from God. We have been blessed, so let us overflow to others. Jesus is the true remedy to both legalism and license, and you and I need Jesus Christ every day. The illustration was used of Julian the Apostate, the Roman emperor in the fourth century who got that name, the Apostate, because he made it his goal to try to turn the empire back to paganism. He wasn't very successful in that, but he he didn't like the fact that Christianity was doing so well. And there's this letter that's preserved that he writes to a pagan priest, and he says, this is really bad. These plagues come, these problems come, and the Christians, they not only care for their own sick, they care for our sick. We're being put to shame. I'm using my own words here. He was complaining to this pagan priest that the Christians are so loving. It's too bad. One of the reasons that Christianity so powerfully spread in the early centuries. The parable of the Good Samaritan does not tell us to be saved by works. Never. Don't ever turn it on its head and make it say that. Jesus was answering theoretically and saying, yes, do this and live. 
That's theoretical, but no human being can do that because of our sin. The parable of the good Samaritan shows us the deep and searching nature of the law of love, love for God and love for others. And when we see that, it brings us to to our knees to say, Jesus Christ, I need you. And may we seek Jesus Christ today. If you don't know him, may you seek him in prayer. Seek to put your faith in him. And may his love through us to our neighbor adorn the profession of our faith to the glory of God. Father, we are weak, but we know that you are strong. We desire to be comfortable. We desire to be secure. We desire to have, in many ways, life as a resort, if we could have it that way. We don't want trials and tribulations. We don't want to be put out. But you have put your life in us, and now there's this new spirit. There's a new desire. There's the love of Jesus Christ that controls us more and more, and we want that to be the case more and more for each one of our lives. Please have that be the case. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in each one of us, forming Christ in us, giving us greater faith to look to you, helping us to expect you to do great things as we seek to attempt great things for Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. You know, and I'm always